Do you employ or pay workers in other countries? Even if you don't yet, you may have to soon. Now that remote work is the norm, employees have more freedom than ever to move around. And if you want to keep your best people, you have to stay flexible. That's why remote makes it easy for companies of all sizes to employ global teams. They take care of international payroll, benefits, taxes, and local compliance, so you can focus less on paperwork and more on growing your business. Remote helps you onboard full-time employees or contractors in countries all over the world in minutes on its simple, easy-to-use platform. Even better, Remote lets you rest easy by providing the most comprehensive intellectual property protections and data security in the industry. They own full local legal entities in all their covered countries, guaranteeing that you never have to deal with a third party ever. To save you money, Remote never charges any fees or salary percentages. You get access to everything that Remote offers, from payroll to compliance to benefits management, for one low flat rate. No hidden fees, no surprises, ever. Just the best global employment solution in the business. Best of all, podcast listeners get an even bigger discount. Get your first employee free for 12 months and two months free for any additional employee onboarded during their first year. Just visit remote.com forward slash B2B better and use the promo code better. See why global companies like GitLab trust Remote to manage and pay their international teams. Whether you want to hire one person or 100, Remote makes it easy. Visit remote.com forward slash B2B better and use the promo code better to get started. Hello and welcome to B2B Better, the only podcast focused on helping early stage marketing teams do better than boring work. My name is Jason Bradwell and every week I sit down with whip smart marketing leaders to talk about what it takes to build a modern day strategy that delivers actual business results, not vanity metrics. Each episode is packed to the rafters with actionable insights and takeaways that you can put into practice today. Let me help you be better than boring. Here we go. Today on B2B Better, I'm very excited to be joined by Danielle Guzman, Global Head of Social Media at Mercer. How are you doing, Danielle? I am doing great. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. We were introduced months ago by our mutual friend, Alicia Russell, who's also been a guest on B2B Better in the past. Um, It's taken a little while for us to align our calendars and, and get talking, but I'm so glad we're finally here. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you, Jason. Tell me a little bit about you and your role at Mercer. Uh, Certainly. So I uh, have been at Mercer now for five years. Uh, I actually started off in the marketing side and have been leading the social media team for the past three years now. Um, For us, that means everything under the umbrella from organic social media to paid media to influencer marketing to employee advocacy, all the brand conversations and pretty much anything that hits any social channel um, under the Mercer brand uh, is covered by our team. So it's a really broad remit. It's incredibly exciting. And we work with our colleagues um, across the globe in that capacity. You're clearly a social media expert, but this is this isn't something you've been doing throughout your entire career, if I understand correctly. Um, tell me a little bit about what you were doing before you fell into the social media game. Yeah, it's a it's a great point, actually. And a lot of times right now, I love I love the whole future of work conversation that's happening right now. Um, and when you think about your career and the fact that, you know, when I was in college, um, you, you went in for a specific discipline, you kind of knew what you thought you were going to do career wise. And then you went out and you pursued that and then continued in that career for 10, 20, 30 years. Whereas now it's all about career experiences and the opportunity to be always learning and to always be reinventing yourself. And I've just applied that way of working to myself for as long as I can remember. I knew from early on that I enjoyed working with people. 
And I love the kind of global facet of, of business, the idea of learning different cultures, meeting different people, and kind of collaborating across the globe. So those elements have always followed with me. But beyond that, I didn't really have a specific thing that I would or wouldn't do. So I was always drawn by marketing. I just love the creativity of it, but then there's also the science of it. Um, so if I look backwards, I've worked across many facets of marketing. So from way early on, um, I actually worked at Siemens, which I don't even think is on my LinkedIn resume. Um, in the automotive group, I spent a tremendous amount of time in Germany and I was running events and I traveled the globe doing events in the automotive industry. And then from there, I went into marketing communications and spent quite a bit of time in that space. Um, from there, I moved on to more recently before Mercer, I was at AIG for 10 years and I joined there on the marketing side and went into the product marketing side. And then from there, pivoted over a little bit more out of marketing into the product development side, which is really um, building our products in the accident and health space across the globe, which was fascinating, trying to learn and understand what one country needs in an insurance product versus another, and how can we find synergies across the globe and at the same time uh, leverage innovations and transport them. Um, and then from there, I went over to our customer insights team, which was very related, if you think of it, right, from a marketing perspective, you're always trying to push something onto your audience. From a product development perspective, you're trying to build what you believe your audience wants. And then customer insights is actually walking a mile in your audience's shoes and understanding their pain points and understanding what it, need, it, what it is they ultimately need um, and how they want to consume it or receive it. And so that was a really insightful kind of experience. And with each of these roles, um, I built up a team and was able to work with individuals, just incredibly talented people. Um, and then I, I think I skipped one part, which was before I went to AIG, I was at Guardian Life Insurance. And there, I also led their company-wide learning and development and training team. So it kind of gives me all the different facets. So when I left AIG, um, it was 10 years and I, I just felt like it was time to do something different and exciting and new. I didn't know what to do next, to be quite honest. I mean, I had a pretty big uh, base and in talking with different people in the talent acquisition space, a gap started becoming really prevalent, which was kind of the whole social conversation. And I played with it, but I never really mastered it. And I don't even, I haven't even mastered it today, but I never really invested significant time in it. And it became to me like a handicap because the, the environment was changing, everything's digital. And yet I didn't have that same investment in it. So I actually took six months and uh, became a, a student and, and learned anything and everything that I could, how people are using the channels, how organizations are using the channels. Um, and then I started using the channels and kind of built momentum. Then that brought me to Mercer. Um, and whilst I did join in a marketing capacity on their global investment side of the business, uh, pretty quickly um, in working with the CMO at the time, um, I was asked, why, why do I not, why am I not a part of the digital team or in social media? And it was a good question. I just never had that experience yet. So the opportunity presented itself and, and here I am. So it was certainly, you know, pushing the comfort zones, I would say, in fairness, for a while, because you were teetering on the edge of, uh, you know, learning and swimming kind of thing at the same time. Um, and there came, I would say probably within the first six months of the role, there became like that aha moment. Like the clarity was there. Uh, I now believed in myself and what I knew. Um, and then from there, we've just been doing absolutely incredible things. It's been a lot of fun, a lot of innovation, and a truly fantastic team.
love that story. And I love to hear what a breadth of, of marketing experience that you've picked up over your career and how it's all kind of culminated now in this like social media role. And I'm sure you've got opinions on everything around the kind of future of events and the future of product marketing and the future of all these different facets and aspects of this beautiful craft. But we're here to talk about social media. So let's start with that. What do you think is going to be the biggest untapped social media opportunity for B2B organizations today? What, what is the biggest opportunity? That's a big question. Mm. <laughs> I Stop wish big. I had that, that little magic ball that I could just tap to see what people would say. Um, for me, though, when I think about it, I have to go back to the roots of what social media is, and it's social media. Whereas when I look at most of what is on the channels today, and that's a very broad statement, but there's a lot of media, there's a lot of content being pushed and promoted, but there's not a lot less social. Um, and I truly believe that things like engaged professionally, professional engaged communities, so those, those audiences that you're seeking to get in front of. And building those kind of engaged conversations and communities with those people. So you're no longer pushing things out. You're actually listening in real time and you're bringing back value to that same community. Um, I think that whole concept of, of community is going to become even bigger. I also think the whole idea of employee advocacy and employee advocacy integrated into if you're doing influencer marketing or you're doing other programs on social media, because right now, whilst people are doing employee advocacy, there is a, a significant amount of organizations that aren't touching it or don't understand it, or, or maybe just starting that journey. And it is probably the greatest untapped potential an organization has because each of those employees has chosen to show up every day and work there. So there must be shared values, a, a common purpose, and they are in the best position possible for that organization to really speak to what the brand is doing and what they're trying to, uh, you know, either sell or offer to the, the clients and the um, prospects that they're, they're targeting. So I just think that's a massive opportunity that has yet to really be tapped. I couldn't agree more. And, and I think that the power in, in empowering your employees to go out there and act as custodians of your brand. And, you know, there's plenty of research out there that clearly states you know, people are more likely to be buy from people or listen to people. But that kind of brings into question then for me, you know, what is the purpose of brands having their own social media accounts? I mean, obviously, you know, if you're a brand, you want to own your handle, but if people buy from people, what's the purpose then of, of that brand account? Like what kind of content should they be posting on? What, what kind of content should brands be posting across their own handle? What do you think about that? That's a great question. So I, I think both of them play a role. And the way I look at it is, I think it, it's a, it, the, the brand channels are going to focus on that overarching narrative for the firm, regardless of a country that if, if you're multinational, for example, you might have an overarching firm wide narrative. And then maybe the local countries, if they have their own handles, they will have a version of that narrative that's relevant to their environment, their culture, and the communities that they serve. Um, so it does set that overarching narrative. It also is a place where you can go and focus on those key conversations. So if you have core solutions or core business areas, that's where you would definitely probably see the big thematic 
um, content that's similar to what I guess you would consider like through advertising or through events, et cetera. So a lot less personal, but they should still be focused on adding value to those who are consuming or considering to consume that content because otherwise we're just going to scroll by. Um, so to me, they, they represent the what, like, what is it that the brand is doing? Um, you know, what are the events? What, are, what is the content? What are the products? What are the solutions? Um, and then on top of that, you know, the, the big voices, obviously, for the organization. To me, when you then look at an individual, so the employees of that organization, they're the why. Why buy from, from Mercer in this case? Why attend this event? Why, why should we be thinking about the importance of well-being and, and mental health as a core aspect of our employee benefits now as organizations are kind of providing uh, modernized benefits to our employees? So done well, the employees can help articulate the why because they're going to speak in their own voice. They're going to speak from their own experiences. They're going to have to connect to that content in order to make it real and to sound credible um, to the communities that they're putting their content out to. No, no individual is gonna to wanna to just publish random corporate content without actually thinking about what they're sharing or, or they shouldn't because it's landing on their social media page. And we talked about earlier the idea that more, more and more people are going from careers to career experiences. So there's a high probability that you will work for more than one employer in your lifetime. So that social page of yours will continue on that journey, the community that has started to follow you is following you and engaging with you because of what you're sharing and how you're sharing it and what you're saying in those messages. So um, I, I think when you look at the two together, they're really powerful and you can leverage that. Many organizations can work with their employees to maybe dial up, dial down or emphasize um, the how colleagues are consuming and engaging with the content. And then they can also, you know, make it... Uh, what am I saying? So you can make it like um, some of the content is compliance regulated. So you can make it so that colleagues can choose to share it, but in some facets, they can't articulate their own opinions. So there's a lot of things you can do. It's almost like a, a jigsaw puzzle and you can piece it together to meet the brand objectives. And at the same time, empower your colleagues to be leading with their voices. I love that delineation, delineation between the brand accounts and the employee accounts, you know, and it's something that I think I've read about before. I think it was Dave Gerhard, um, the CM, former CMO of Privy, you know, described that the brand accounts should be viewed as kind of like a news ticker. That's where you're putting out those kind of corporate announcements, the products, the product services stuff, um, you know. Uh, C-suite announcements and things of that nature, but then the real opportunity opportunity comes around that why, as you as you put, um, in equipping your employees and colleagues out to go out there and, and kind of preach the gospel, so to speak. On that second piece, much harder, much rarer to see out there um, B two B brands doing it effectively. Why do you think that is? Where do you think that these companies get tripped up in uh, rolling out an effective employee advocacy program? It's a great question. Um, I think a couple things. So first of all, I'm a big believer that in order to really be effective, you need to actually practice what you preach. So there's so many different ways to structure a social media team in an organization. And employee advocacy doesn't always even sit within the social media team. And I think there's wonderful models out there and they all work for each of the organizations. When you think though about what employee advocacy does is you're, you're activating those people onto social platforms. So 
you need to understand those social platforms. And I don't mean from reading a book, but I mean, you need to live on those platforms and truly know how difficult it is to build an engaged community. Understand how important it is, the way you write your messages, the way you choose to present your content. And these small nuances in today's world can have a radical impact on the performance um, of anything that a colleague does. And it takes someone or a team that is really passionate about what they do and is practicing it to invest in those nuances and understand, well, how is the algorithm on LinkedIn changing? What's happening in Twitter? And what about Instagram or TikTok or you know, Facebook? They're all so unique in their own ways, yet there are common elements to them, but it's those unique aspects that are where the secret sauce lies. And I feel that when you maybe outsource too much to an agency, you lose some of that um, because you don't know what you don't know. So you're kind of capped when you have someone who's leading this, but doesn't truly do it themselves every day, then the fear factor comes too high and you're going to hold back and you're not maybe going to empower quite as much because you may not realize how critical doing one or two little things is to the success of the overall program. So I'll give you an example. So one of the things we do is we absolutely empower our people. Uh, We have a social media policy. And the policy is quite short, actually. It's a page. Mm. Um, And it focuses on the, the most fundamental kind of guidelines for being on social media. Beyond that, you have to trust your people. (laughs) Um, You're trusting them every day to do their jobs, whether they're client facing or not. You are trusting them to deliver top quality content aligned to their goals, to be engaged and to be showing up and doing the right thing. So some of these overarching aspects of one's culture have to be carried forward into now enabling them. The other thing is, is whether or not you enable them, more than 90% of most organizations have that whole population already using social media. They may not be talking about your brand, but they're talking and they work for your brand. So there is an association and someone could arguably say, oh, Jason, I saw you talking about this online. Whilst you're not talking about the organization you work for, you work there. So I'm associating your behavior with that organization. So whether you want to or not, they're already out there. They're living and representing your brand. So The way I see it is make it a valuable opportunity for them to enable them to build their professional brand. And by association, it's going to elevate the visibility and the expertise that is within the organization. And it associates the trust with the organization. And then most importantly, so many people right now are talking about the great resignation and that, you know, I think it was outstanding that the stats, um, that I read at least in the US with uh, over 11 million people having left their jobs in like three months over the course of the summer, just record volumes. Well, those people are leaving and not everyone leaves in with a, with a negative experience. A lot of people leave for new opportunities um, and they leave on a good note. Well, the, the trust you've built with the brand, that person has built with the brand, it carries forward with them into all their new opportunities. Yes, they may or may not be out there advocating for their prior organization, but that doesn't matter. You, that you've already taken your entire community and you've helped them to understand the value that your current organization brings to the communities they serve. 
And now you've moved on to another organization, but that community is not just going to forget about Mercer or forget about whatever organization you work at. They've now established a point of view on that firm and they will continue to have that positive view as they see content coming forward or they meet new individuals or they talk to someone and they're like, oh, you know what? Check out this organization because I know they do that. Um, and they have a very positive association with it. So there's actually a lot of value in the transient nature of people who are advocating as they go, because the brand gets to hang on to that growing network as all of this goes forward. And I think that's one of the actually handicap, not handicaps, but um, concerns that I hear often is that why would I train all my people to do this? Because they're going to be noticed, then they're going to be hired and they're going to leave the organization. That was going to be my next question, actually. That was going to be my next question. How how do you, how do you, how do you, you know, because I agree with everything you say, but to play devil's advocate, I mean, what do you say to the CEO saying like, why am I investing in promoting my employees and how great they are? They're just going to get picked up by a competitor. It's a very fair point. Um, But I mean, honestly, they're going to get picked up either way. I, 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 you know, I'm on LinkedIn every day and, and I've never seen more opportunities land in my direct messages either for me or for someone that I might know if I could please connect the dots with them. And it it comes down to, to me, it's not about empowering people on employee advocacy. That now comes down to where you work, the culture, the way that organization enables you to do your job, uh, your alignment to their vision, the purpose, the manager you work for. There's so many things that come to mind, right? The minute an opportunity presents itself to you, you're like, oh, well, that looks good. Shiny salary increase. But yet it, for many of us, I mean, obviously that's a great aspect of everything, but it's more than that, right? I mean, are you going to give up flexibility for, you know, you start weighing, like I'm going to lose this flexibility, but I'm going to get more salary here. But then there's these red flags there. And I actually really like this here. So you're going to start making those decisions. So I don't think it's as black and white. Number one, number two, we live in a world now where organizations have a, uh, they play a role in the learning and development of the people who work for them. It's not only on us, it is on us to obviously be investing in ourselves, um, but it's not only on us and our organizations play a role in that journey as well. So this to me, how to equip someone digitally to show up professionally, to know how to build a professional engaged network and to be able to contribute to the voice of the brand and advocate is a part of that learning curriculum. And I, would, I struggle with organizations that want to hold that back and, and basically not allow their people to be the best that they can be in this current digital economy that we live in. Especially in a situation which you've already alluded to where, you know, more and more people are interested in going out there and using these channels to grow their own personal profile. Certainly as a marketer myself, working for a company, never have I experienced so many people knocking on my door saying, or or even me just discovering them naturally, you know, they're writing on blogs, they're appearing on podcasts, um, they're posting on social media, they're already doing all of this kind of stuff. And you know, for me, I look at that as an opportunity because I've been banging on the door for the last decade, begging people to please, you know, work with me and let's go out there and let's promote ourselves. And, you know, let's use your expertise to, to establish some credibility for us. And, you know, it's been, it's been hard graft. And now we're in a situation where the tables have turned. Why would you not as a marketer want to wield what already exists, you know, what is already potentially a tool in your arsenal and just, Give them some 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 guide rails, right? Because you know your job is not to your job isn't to exploit them. 
Your job is to protect them and to give them the tools that they need to be the best version of their digital selves. It's getting a little bit motivational quotey here now, but um, you know what I mean? Like it's, that's something that's always, that's also been a challenge that I've experienced is, you know, people coming to me that they want to do more, but they're not quite sure what to do. And that kind of, that, that, leads to a paralysis. They don't want to get in trouble. They don't want to say something that's going to cause them an issue or cause the company an issue. And as such, they just don't go and do anything. So it's your job as a marketer to recognize that that desire to do something and to give them, as you say, the tools they need to go out there and, and do it effectively. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think for organizations that perhaps aren't investing right now into employee advocacy, then as long as you have a clear social media policy, that lets colleagues know what they can and cannot do, there's no reason aligned to the policy that an individual can't be present and build their, their digital brand. They may not be advocating for the firm they work for, but instead they're gonna invest in building the conversations that are important to them. So it probably based in their expertise or areas of interest. And at least that gives them an opportunity to build that visibility. Because I think right now at a minimum you wanna have uh, a complete profile on whichever social channel you choose to use. That way, if you get Googled and people look you up, you're going to show up in the way that you want to be found. And then next, next level up from that would be if you're going to start you know, creating content or sharing content and you're not in an official employee advocacy program, then just be thoughtful about what it is you want to be talking about because you never know when you're going to be Googled. And unfortunately, people will make impressions and perceptions on you uh, whether or not you like them or are even aware of them. Yeah, absolutely. So let's take a step away from the employee advocacy piece uh, for a moment and talk more kind of holistically around how you set your your social media strategy or how, how you've done so in your career. Are you, are you going out there at the beginning of the year and saying, you know, here are going to be our social media goals for the next 12 months? Or do you prefer to keep things a little bit more short term? Because, you know, having worked uh, with social media for, for the last five years or so in my professional career, it ebbs and flows and changes and algorithms can suddenly throw everything out of whack. And then there's a huge kind of social cause that needs to be addressed. And then that can affect your, your, your kind of KPIs. Um, how are you going out and, and setting your goals and across what timeline? That's a great question. So uh, the answer to your first question is yes, we do look at overarching goals on an annual basis. Um, and then we also look at kind of the building blocks to reach that goal. And that becomes a series of additional goals kind of underneath it. So if you think about a pillar, whether it's employee advocacy or influencer marketing or um, you know, paid media, et cetera. Like what, what are the maybe top two or three? I tend to not go bigger than three goals for maybe each of those big thematic pillars. And then what are the big building blocks that we're going to have sub goals on in order to activate and, and kind of make that progress. And to your point, that then allows us to like, you know, uh, level up some of them or level down some of them, um, depending on what's happening. And you can, and then those are done, you know, pretty real time, but I mean, when, if it's paid media, it's quite real time, but for everything else, I mean, it takes a little bit of time to move the ship. Um, so, you know, we're, we're definitely reviewing everything on at least a bi-weekly to monthly basis to take a look at what's working, what's performing. Um, and then there's always the flexibility. And I think that's really part of the organization culture. And it's not just for social media, it's for any functional area that if something does change, 
and it requires a revisit and a restatement of a key focus area, then we do that. Um, but for the most part, I do find that as an organization, I mean, you're always looking to build brand awareness, um, unless you're maybe Apple, but most organizations will have some facet of brand awareness. Now, how you do that will vary significantly as the environment changes and the channels change, but that's kind of always gonna be one of the, the big true Norths. Um, for me, I'm a huge fan of engagement. I really believe in engaged communities. And I know we talked about the brand earlier and kind of broadcasting uh, content. Uh, we do focus on creating engaged conversations, even on the brand channel. So how we do that and there's goals around that and we measure progress and the different ways that we activate that. So it's definitely a mix of the two. Um, and, and I mean, I find it works very well. It's really important too, because it allows us to go outside of the social function and connect into the uh, goals of the, the bigger group that you sit in and then ladder up to the organization. And I think that's important because people want to know how they create value that is impactful to the organization. And for team members to see you're a direct contributor into impacting this goal, this goal feeds into this goal at the larger COE level, which directly feeds into, you know, the organizational goal or maybe a revenue goal and being able to show that clear journey, I find is, is really important. It reminds me of a conversation I was having with one of my colleagues today about something because social media is intuitively, and you said the word there, kind of like a brand play, right? It's, it's, it's tricky to attach social media um, to revenue-based metrics, but we can dig a little bit more into that in a second. But uh, I think I, I was saying to my team member today when he was pitching a campaign to me, which was a little bit unclear on like what the wider objective was to, to doing it other than it just sounded good. The question I asked was like, to what end are we doing this? Right. And he's like, okay, so we're putting out this content because we want to get people onto the blog. Okay. But why do we want to get people onto the blog? Well, we want to get them, uh, you know, download, we want them clicking on this form, filling in their details and then get them into the database. Okay. But then why do we want them into the database? We want them into the database because then we can, you know, retarget, remarket to them and put them into some sort of nurture funnel, um, with the end goal of getting them into some sort of kind of conversion play. Okay. There you go. Like the, it's gone from the objective of like, let's just publish this cool blog post to we're publishing this blog post because blah, 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 and that ladders up all the way through to that kind of commercial target. So that question, like to what end, why are we doing this and keep digging and digging and digging until you get to that final piece that's based on revenue. Even if you don't actually have necessarily a direct impact within your function on that revenue piece, you can draw that through line. Um, I, I don't know what you think about that. No, I, I think the way you've articulated it, that, that's when you get the aha moment. That's mm. when you can really appreciate and understand what you do and the value it's creating. Um, but I do think that conversation that you just kind of had with yourself and me is one that a lot more people need to be having because everything moves so quickly. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable, the pace. I mean, we're all overwhelmed with too many demands, too little time. So there's little thought other than like goals done, check the box. Okay, now let's just get to work. Um, and I think you have to break that down because it is tricky. And a lot of B2B social media, I mean, unless you're directly promoting or running an event or having a piece of thought leadership that is pay for purchase or the event is, you know, pay to, to join, um, 
not everything lends itself to an immediate transaction. So the transaction components are easy. Um, the ones that are not transaction-based, you need to start thinking creatively around how do I demonstrate either that it drove you know 40% of the new podcast <laughs> downloads uh, in the last month, and what does that translate to? And how do you assign a dollar value to that based on the other ways that you're attra attracting that community? Um, so a lot of times it's, it's also kind of putting a dollar value against um, the social acquisition compared to some of your other means of getting those acquisitions. And then the quality of them will vary as well. So that's an area that we're constantly kind of brainstorming, learning, applying, um, even though we don't have a direct revenue goal, it's really important to be able to demonstrate how it plugs into that revenue conversation. And how are you going about, uh, you know, creating that evidence? Is it through uh, a tool or a set of tools? Is it more anecdotal? I mean, what what is what does that process look like for you and your team in building up that that kind of evidence pot? So it, it, it's a, a bit of both. So there's, we definitely, actually, we don't come up with anecdotal, but we will hear from internal clients that, you know, the majority of our registration came through here. And unless it was set up correctly, you know, I'll, I'll be the first to say, well, how do you know? Well, we just know. <laughs> well, how do you know? And, then, and they'll say, because we launched this program, it's the only thing we've ever done differently for the last 10 episodes of this particular event. Uh, it's been a consistent, you know, registration and all of a sudden it like doubled and this is the only thing we did differently. So there is definitely a lot of that, which is great to hear, but doesn't kind of, but that's not enough for me. Yeah. <laughs> the data. <laughs> I want the real hard facts. Um, so the other thing we do as well is we work with different partners. So partners like LinkedIn, um, our agency, and they have different tools to be able to track whether it's off of our website, whether it's off of the social content where it's originating, whether it's through Salesforce on, on the back end, you know, once the, the leads come in, kind of where they're being sourced. And, and the one thing that I'm very particular about is I, I, I do not want to have opt-in validation validation of where you found us or where you found that event, et cetera, meaning you select from a dropdown that I saw this on social. Um, I, I really insist on having that the pixel or whatever the tracking mechanism is to be really scientifically proving that this person came from here. Um, they clicked on this, they downloaded, consumed, purchased, whatever that action was, and then we can kind of follow it through. Now, Unfortunately, obviously, the, you know, the sales funnel is no longer just a pretty little funnel. Um, mm. It's one big cobweb. So there's a lot of attribution. So we also work as well with an attribution model to understand, you know, what points in the process or how many touch points came from social versus other sources. Um, and, you know, that's a whole kind of model. And I'm not the expert on that side of the fence. Um, but that there's a whole model there so that we can understand the attribution. And then we can see, right, where uh, is our content really kind of more consideration focused? Um, and are we playing too heavily in that space? Uh, do we have enough content to kind of just build the awareness and kind of bring people into the conversation? And how is each of those performing and then calibrating that type of content in order to really hit the mix that we're interested in? I have to say that I think you've created my favorite description of what is the new marketing funnel, which is the marketing cobweb, because I've been trying to think of a, I've been trying to think of a new word to describe what is clearly a broken kind of visualization. And the cobweb is the best one I've ever heard. Uh, that is a very accurate description of, of what the new buyer journey looks like. <laughs> um, so thank you for that. Um, what, how, 
there's been a lot of conversation been going on recently in marketing in the marketing circles and, and, and digital marketing circles in particular around the diminishing returns of, of kind of paid uh, social media ads. Um, and, uh, you know, that is particularly prevalent in the B2B sector, as you will know. What is that conversation doing to your efforts um, about how you're approaching kind of paid versus organic social media as you move into 2022 and beyond? It's a great question. Um, I would, I'm not sure if I would say I'm seeing the diminishing returns on paid yet. I am seeing the diminishing returns on organic. Mm. Um, and, you know, we've definitely increased the investment in paid. Uh, paid in a couple ways, paid through traditional paid campaigns, you know, through LinkedIn or Facebook or other channels, um, but then also paid through influencer marketing. And both of those so far, I would say, are definitely driving very strong ROIs. However, it's we are very focused in how we use it, meaning we have invested so heavily, and I believe deeply in investing on the organic side. Um, and it, the reason why I think people jump off of organic, so yes, it, it's, it's become such a noisy space. It's really difficult and, and it's being squeezed out. But if you over time are taking the investment on organic from a, an engagement and relationship perspective, you're going to be able to maintain a certain level of conversation, regardless of what's happening, because you have that, that community that shows up. It's just like if you go onto LinkedIn or Twitter as an individual right now, you post and there's no one there or you post and, and people just join the conversation and start sharing and commenting and engaging with one another. So once you've created that dynamic, it carries on and grows with you. Uh, it doesn't matter what, what happens if you turn off the paid or turn on the paid, they're still there to have that conversation with you. You've built those relationships. Um, you've been giving to them. They're giving back. So I think investing in that foundation is just so important because then whatever happens around you, you can scale up or scale down, but you're never losing that. It's almost like when you work with influencers, I always say uh, there's obviously, I believe deeply in influencer marketing, both paid and organic. More often than not, organizations do paid only. It's easier. It doesn't require as much investment or expertise and you can outsource it. Kind of like a win-win-win. Yeah. Um, but I think it's equally important to invest in the organic side of it. Build relationships, own them. So then that way, if you run out of money or you can't pay them, they're there because you have a relationship. There are other ways that you can uh, recognize, reward, um, kind of you know provide non-monetary revenue essentially, um, give them access to things, and. If you can build that base in the same way that you invest in paid, it's going to give you a very different dynamic. So, the, so these are, I kind of like to have a safety net and to also build something that we own. So we own the organic, we own the kind of non-revenue focused influencers, and then we grow the investment in the paid and then the paid influencers, and then you bring them together and kind of find the synergies. Um, but I would say looking at 2022, we're definitely doing more on the influencer side. We're definitely doing more on the paid media side, but we're being very thoughtful about where we do that. And because you also don't want to be just blasting out to everyone all the time. It's critical that you make sure you're not, you're, you're being thoughtful about the audiences that you're engaging with. 
Uh, you don't want to be showing up every day. That I think that's going to really just tire things out. So it's important to you know have that kind of zoomed out holistic view of who you're targeting, when, why, for what, for what duration. And so you don't saturate anything. And that when you do go out, you lead with value, right? Every time, whether it's paid or organic, every time someone makes a choice to click on something you've shared, to stop and watch it, to read it, to do any kind of dwell time over top of your social content, you have asked of their time. You've taken actually their time. So we must give back more than we're taking. And that's the way I look at anything we do on social media, whether we're promoting a webinar, we're asking someone to click it, we're asking someone to actually come register and join us. So what are we giving you that is going to be a greater return than what we've taken from you? If we're taking more than we're giving, we failed. So that's kind of like the foundational way of looking at anything we do. Um, and then paid just kind of, you know, pushes it out to you. But I don't think you should be sacrificing that. And if you do, that's when you start seeing the diminishing returns. Because why, why you, I haven't earned your time. So why should I expect you to give to me whether you pay for it, I pay for it or not? Give more than you're taking is a great episode title, I think. And it, it really just sums up my philosophy and clearly your philosophy too on B2B marketing, which is, you said it, you said it beautifully, lead with value, you know? And um, uh, one of the things that strikes me about everything we've spoken about on this episode, employee advocacy, organic social, influencer marketing, you know, things that clearly are, are proving to be highly successful for Mercer and many other B2B companies out there one thing they all have in common is they're all hard and they require that kind of consistent delivery of high value uh, material to your target customers. And that's probably where a lot of B2B brands fall, fall flat is they, they try and kick off an employee advocacy campaign. They try and experiment a little bit with influencer marketing and they don't see those results straight away that they would get with something like paid. And as such, they give up and they say, well, that's clearly then that door's closed because it, it hasn't worked for us, but it's because they haven't given it a real, a real consistent shot. Um, and I don't know if there's anything you'd, more you'd say on that, but that's the thing that strikes me about all of these things. We know they work intuitively as marketers. It's our job to work with our leadership teams and, and build the business cases that it, it, it deserves a kind of continued consistent investment over the long term, which is not going to pay off necessarily immediately, but in the long term, pay huge dividends. Yeah, and I, and I think I, I agree with you completely. The only thing I would say, you're playing for the long game. And I do think that that's where, even, so if rewind to employee advocacy, you can start small, right? Start with a, a 50 employees, 25. Um, it, you can prove conceptually and demonstrate the return and then get the opportunity to do it longer term. But the way I see it is outside of paid media, it's a marathon. It is not a race, um, but we live in a world where everything is instantaneous. And the, you know a lot of company cultures have grown up that way and they expect results on a monthly quarterly basis. And that's part of the things that we have to balance. You talked about goals, right? You need to balance those short-term wins with those longer-term returns so that you're able to buy yourself the time to make those big impacts uh, on a longer-term longer scale. I couldn't have said it better myself. Two more questions for you, Danielle. One, what do you think is going to be the biggest change in how B2B companies market themselves in the next five years? 
I think people are going to change in the way that they activate their employees. Um, and I, the reason I say this is because the structure of the workforce is changing right now, and it's only going to continue changing. We're starting to see, you know, more and more. There's 57 million gig workers in the U.S., which is the latest stuff that I read. Um, that's massive. That is only going to continue growing, which means our workforce is going to become a much bigger, diverse pool of full-time employees, freelancers, gig workers, agencies, and organizations need to have a clear, structured, simple way to activate all those people that work with that organization and to be able to go out and advocate for them, especially when you think about that gig economy and those freelance workers who are transient. You want them to take your brand with them. I think that's a huge, huge opportunity to unlock. Something I'd never really thought about before. I mean, obviously, employee advocacy is something that we've spoken about uh, I've spoken about with previous guests on this podcast, but I'd never really thought about, well, what happens when they actually do leave? I've always looked at it as like a means to keep people on board. Not the only reason someone's going to stay with a company, but personally for me, you know, my own personal brand is important to me. And if given the choice of two identical companies, one with a very robust social media policy practice and one with a, no, you can't speak at all on social media, I know where I'm going to go. Um, I'd never really thought about it. You know, what happens actually after that person does, you know, does leave the business on, on good terms or bad um, and the effect that can have. So that's a really, really good way of looking at it. Um, final question for you, Danielle, who should I interview next on B2B Better? Oh, have you interviewed Anita Vaselli yet? No, never spoken to Anita. Ah, uh, then I would absolutely say you need to speak with Anita. She's the director of social media and advocacy at Ericsson. She's based okay. in Stockholm, Sweden. She's absolutely wonderful to speak with. And I think you would really enjoy that opportunity and uh, she'll bring a completely fresh perspective to this conversation. Wonderful. Well, I'm going to be hitting you up for an introduction to Anita after this podcast, but uh, where can people find you online, Danielle? Anyone wants to learn more about you and your views on social media, where can they get hold of you? Uh, great question. Come join me on LinkedIn, just Danielle Guzman. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Guzman D. And then I'm on Instagram as well, but that's a bit more personal, but I would love to see you there. It's a public profile and that's at Guzman DMG. Wonderful. I'll put the links to your LinkedIn and your Twitter profile in the description of this episode. But otherwise, Danielle, thank you so much for coming on to B2B Better. Thank you so much, Jason. It's been a great conversation. I appreciate it. Do you employ or pay workers in other countries? Even if you don't yet, you may have to soon. Now that remote work is the norm, employees have more freedom than ever to move around. And if you want to keep your best people, you have to stay flexible. That's why Remote makes it easy for companies of all sizes to employ global teams. They take care of international payroll, benefits, taxes, and local compliance, so you can focus less on paperwork and more on growing your business. Remote helps you onboard full-time employees or contractors in countries all over the world in minutes on its simple, easy-to-use platform. Even better, Remote lets you rest easy by providing the most comprehensive intellectual property protections and data security in the industry. They own full local legal entities in all their covered countries, guaranteeing that you never have to deal with a third party ever. To save you money, Remote never charges any fees or salary percentages. You get access to everything that Remote offers, from payroll to compliance to benefits management, for one low flat rate. No hidden fees, no surprises, ever. Just the best global employment solution in the business. Best of all, podcast listeners get an even bigger discount. Get your first employee free for 12 months and two months free for any additional employee onboarded during their first year. Just visit remote.com forward slash b2b better and use the promo code better.
See why global companies like GitLab trust Remote to manage and pay their international teams. Whether you want to hire one person or 100, Remote makes it easy. Visit remote.com forward slash B2B better and use the promo code better to get started. And that's it for this episode of B2B Better. If you enjoyed the interview, go ahead and subscribe to my podcast, leave a rating, a comment, a review, or just share it on social media. It'll really make my day. Every Monday morning, I send out a newsletter to B2B marketers all around the world on how to do better B2B marketing. You can sign up to that via the link that I'm going to leave in the description of this episode. Or if you need a fix of B2B marketing content goodness right now, you can head over to my website at www.jasonrbradwell.com. See you next week. This episode was sponsored by Remote.